Hello from Houston, and welcome to the Highlights Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. And welcome back to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Femi, and I'm a transactional attorney here in Houston. And my name is Patrick. I'm an arbitration lawyer also here in Houston. Well, um, this is a wonderful uh, episode that we have here. Um, we have our, our great friend, Amber McGee. Um, Amber is a second-year associate at Sussman Godfrey LLP, and she's fresh off of a clerkship, uh, a very, very cool clerkship that she had with Judge Carl Stewart of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Amber, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Um, so as I said, Amber is a litigation associate at Sussman Godfrey LLP. She's in the Houston office, um, and she's in her second year of practice. Um, as I said, she clerked for the Court of Appeals, which was uh, located in Shreveport, but she also spent a good amount of time in, in the know, right? Um, yeah, Amber. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Amber New is Orleans. A- is, is it New Orleans? Do we say no yeah. now instead of NOLA? Oh, yeah, the, the no, the no, the N-O. Is that for real? Oh yeah. Oh, I'm. I mean, I'm. I've never used either of those, but I, I can adapt. <laughs> well, hey, uh, you know, this is some something new you can add to your repertoire. Okay. Um. So she's a proud double Longhorn, um, and she graduated from the University of Texas with a BS in public health, and from the and from the University of Texas School of Law uh, in 2020. Um, in law school, she was the president of the Thurgood Marshall Legal Society, which is also, um, it's a branch of Balsa, and she was active in moot court. And, uh, if I recall, you actually won the, uh, the Frederick Douglass moot court competition. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, name, you know, still to be determined. Um, but yeah. So Amber, what was your path to law school? So I did not intend, um, sort of like. Some people know that they want to go to law school when they're like little. Um, that wasn't me. I probably should have known that because I started doing debate when I was like 13 and I loved it. Um, but when I went to college, that wasn't like on my radar. I was in the College of Natural Sciences and was like doing all the pre-med stuff and then independently shifted away from that and just started like diving into public health and like social programs and social interventions my like pie in the sky dream was to like go to Cuba and like administer a vaccination program because unfortunately even now like there's just so many vaccines that we take for granted quite frankly and um, not gonna get into that can of worms but I'm talking like the the normal stuff like stuff that kids have to have to go into kindergarten right um, yeah. but they don't have access to and they just kind of never have quite frankly hmm. um, and so there's things that we take for granted like polio and other diseases that are very much still realities um, in certain parts of the world. Um, so that was sort of what I wanted to do, but to, to kind of get to this like, you know, clinical experience or this like trip, you had to take this class called Social Contacts of Public Health. Um, and it was sort of like looking at the political side of public health, which in the year 2021, we could probably write a book about that. 
Um, but just sort of, you know, interventions, like whether you want to take like gun violence, if you consider that public health problem, HIV AIDS, right? Um, Ebola at that time. And so we, the end of the project, we had to write a paper um, sort of about the intersection of health and politics. And I chose um, Hobby Lobby versus Burwell. And it was one of the cases interpreting the Affordable Care Act. And basically the holding in that case was that um, religious employers or religious-based employers need not provide birth control in compliance with the terms of the Affordable Care Act if there could be an exception for certain kinds of birth control. And that really like floored me. I don't know. I didn't know much about the Constitution, but the idea that there could be like a corporation that has some sort of First Amendment right, I was like, that is novel. I mean, I was a sophomore or a junior in college at the time, so I was not even 21. Um, and I talked to my professor who had the distinction of being both um, a lawyer and a physical therapist. And he was like, yeah, for the answers you want, you really need to go to the law school. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went and I took a couple of classes. Um, and so then like going into the summer before junior year, studied for the LSAT. Um, and I, I started working for lawyers about this time too, because I was like, okay, what does it look like? And I was a file clerk um, at a like defense firm in Austin, but it was really nice because those were the first lawyers I met, got to kind of see bustle and bustle, um, lots, lots and lots of settlements, but that's not wildly different from like the law I do today. And so, yeah, so it was sort of a very curved path, but it's funny because I have very strong views about like, when, when people ask like, why do you go to law school? I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I launched into this like Hobby Lobby versus Burrow discussion. And I feel like it's never quite what people are expecting, but that's what it is. Did you... Did you have any interest in doing, I guess, constitutional law? Because, because I would say, the the activities that you that you kind of gravitated to would would need like the skills that you crafted in law school. Yeah, I never thought about like litigating those issues because at a certain point, there's so much of it that's kind of already been done. Like even I think of like the interesting cases now where it's sort of like what protections do LGBTQ people get? It's not constitutional law, right? It's like interpreting Title VII, um, which was passed pursuant to, don't quote me on this, but I assume commerce lost power because the civil rights cases kind of did away with, um, you know, the ability to pass things under Section 5. Um, but anyway, so no, I don't really think about it. I think it's something I like always read about and I admire and being a clerk on the Court of Appeals getting to sit and read, you know, the constitutional law decisions as part of my job was super cool. But right. um, I think a lot of the ground has been covered. So here's to hoping to like uncover something new. Um, yeah, I, I feel like constitutional law really doesn't intersect too often with people when they're in private practice. But does did it have anything to do with why you decided to apply for a clerkship and a clerkship at the, the appellate level? Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, I sort of wanted a really academic experience. Um, and so I talked with professors, but also the law, I went to UT and the clerkship coordinator, Kathleen Overly, she's fantastic. Um, yeah, talked to them sort of about what that looked like. And I did want something that wasn't just sort of like motion by motion, very fast paced, very much like 
you know, almost hit it and quit it kind of stuff. I mm-hmm. wanted something that was broader. And I think in times like a little more depth. Um, and so that definitely pushed me towards that. And I think that, I mean, separate from constitutional law, when I was in law school, like civil procedure was my like whiz kid subject, or that was the thing that I was like, just like, you need me to quote your rule? I got, I got <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> and so like, I mean, it was really cool. A lot of the legal issues go up on appeal, right? It's the legal issues yeah. that really you consider fact issues. It's really hard to get at on appeal because of the standard of review. So I wanted to be a little less fact-based, a little more law-based, which pushed me to look at appellate clerkships as opposed to district court clerkships or like magistrate judge clerkships. So I remember probably in first year, I don't remember who explained it to me this way, but that at the trial level, really what you're litigating is what the law requires. But when you're litigating at the appellate level, it's you're litigating what the law should be. Is that what, do you agree with that? Is that what you felt like you were doing throughout your clerkship, like trying to figure out what the law in the Fifth Circuit should be? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll say we tried to figure out what it should be. And I think that is a noble way to think about it every day when you go into work. But it often ended up being sort of mitigating what the law is going to be. I think (laughs) like you just, you have to parse a lot of, viewpoints and and so but yes i think that you're exactly right if you want to make like broad system-based arguments like for example um in the past couple years the supreme court has issued a number of decisions looking at the structure of certain agencies so like a person will have a run-in with let's say the irs like not even you're not paying your taxes or you know some tax problem and rather than like getting into it with the irs about well, whether or not I owe you these taxes, some litigants have been like, eh, the whole structure of the IRS or the whole structure of an agency is unconstitutional because it's an unconstitutional delegation of authority from Congress to the executive. As you might imagine, in the district court, usually not prepared to invalidate an entire agency. No. Maybe not the place, but, and again, it's not, you know, in theory, if something's unconstitutional, the only, I think it was a quote from Justice Scalia was, it's not that the Supreme Court, you know, is last because we get things right more often. It's, um, you know, we get things right more often because we're last, because there is no court of last review. So it's not that a district court can't do the correct analysis, or for that matter, the court of appeals can't do the correct analysis. It's just, it's hard to do when you know that there are, in the Fifth Circuit's case, there's 17 active judges plus nine to 10 senior judges looking over your work, and then the Supreme Court justices. So I think that's true that if on a daily basis you want to argue about the way the law should work, you should be an appellate clerk, you should be an appellate lawyer, you should be an appellate judge if you get the chance. Um. So I guess going back to your your decision to apply, you know, at what point did you decide to apply and how did you go about, you know, picking the the the, the judge or the court or or even the level? Like why did you decide, you know, I'm going for court of appeals and I'm not applying for district court or or if you did and you got both, why did you go ahead and, and choose the the latter? 
I only was ever interested in litigation. To this day, I don't know that I know um, what your job entails for me or what transactional lawyers do. So much respect, but I have no clue. If I had to walk in your shoes tomorrow, it would be, it wouldn't be a walk, it'd be a stumble in a fall. Um, Amber, so, <laughs> my, my shoes are very comfy, and anytime you're willing <laughs> to take a step, I promise you. No, no, not at all. Um, and, and so it was sort of a, okay, I talked to these people who seem very successful and who do their jobs and who do things that I think I want to do. More than, you know, an insignificant number of them have completed clerkships. Most federal clerkships, but not necessarily. Some people clerk for like the Texas Supreme Court, for example. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to look into this. And it was really nice because right around the time I was getting curious about clerkships and the law school started having those coordinated programs for two L's. Um, so I went to a couple of those, saw, you know, they had panels of current clerks, former clerks, professors who clerked. Um, and I was like, okay, this is all really interesting. And the application process really isn't all that daunting when you've already gone through OCI when you've already applied. So you need a writing sample, you need a resume, you need a cover letter. You know, the, the cover letter and the writing samples you may customize for each judge you apply to, just depending on what you're looking for. But the application, the getting the materials together wasn't that hard. Now you asked me about how I picked the judges that I applied to. That's actually pretty deliberate, right? Um, people have different philosophies on this, but in my mind, you really need to know what you want out of your clerkship before you just go blindly applying. Like some people think I've been told I need a federal clerkship because I want to be a federal judge because I want to work at this particular place because I, you know, they have very concrete, like stepping stones in mind. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that just wasn't me. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, I wanted a really academic experience and I got one. Um, but you only know sort of what it's going to be like in chambers if you do the work of reaching out to former clerks. Um, so if you go to a law school that has like a healthy alumni group of former clerks, you could probably just go through your law school and contact clerks who's, who worked for judges. If you don't, and like in my case, UT Law, so, so many former federal clerks, but I'm the first um, UT Law student to clerk for my judge. So I just kind of used LinkedIn, quite frankly, um, mm -hmm. and found people who had it on their resume. Because that's the thing, everyone mm -hmm. who's clerked has it on their firm bio or on LinkedIn. So you just type in like clerk to judge's name, you'll find some people and I've yet to find a former clerk who isn't gushing and so excited to talk about their clerkship experience and their judge. Um, so that's what I did. And it's really all quite coincidental. Um, person who I reached out to um, who clerked for my judge uh, works at Sussman Godfrey. Um, and so I, you know, kind of just talked to him. He's, uh, he's been a great help and a mentor to me. Um, and a friend. And so that's been really cool. Um, but I think, so zooming out, if I were going to clerk again, or if I was talking to someone who's going to clerk again, these are the three things I would consider. First, what kind of experience you want to have? Like, do you want something fast paced where you're, you know, dealing with motions every day? That looks like something at the trial court level. Do you want something that's more academic? It's a lot, probably a lot more focused on, you have to be a good writer and you'll get writing skills regardless. But I think the opinions you read um, from the Court of Appeals might tend to be a little bit longer, a little bit more 
like those briefs you write in law school, quite frankly. Um, so that's kind of like, what do you want? And then also the degree to which you want to mentor or not, right? Like my judge, uh, Judge Stewart is phenomenal. I talk to him often, although I haven't called him as often as I should since I started working. Um, and he's he's very much like in our kitchen and chambers. He has a photo of, of every former law clerk. He's in his like 97th, 98th law clerk. And um, I think I was law clerk 95. Don't quote me on that. But he because he's been a federal judge since um, 1994. And so three to four clerks a year for that many years yields quite a few clerks, not to mention interns, not to mention, yeah. you know, people. And but it's nice because that's a network of you know, a hundred lawyers in different stages of their career, I can talk to you. Um, so he's very involved, but other judges are not. Some judges only, they sort of have a, a drop box on their desk. You turn the work into the drop box. You go back to your like siloed office. And some people need that or some people want that, right? Like I moved to Shreveport. I didn't know anyone in Shreveport. I was really looking for sort of an all-inclusive experience with mentors and friends and things like that. And I got that. Um, my co-clerks and I are very close. Um, yeah. We had an intern, so very, very, very cool experience. Um, second, I think, is what you want to practice. So if you want to do immigration, obviously there's a couple districts in Texas that would serve you well. The Southern District and the Western District, probably the El Paso Division more so than others in the Western District. Um, if you want to do intellectual property, right? Eastern District of Texas, Western District of Texas. Fancy, complex financial crimes work, you're looking at New York, maybe the Central District of California, places like that. Um, so these are things to consider, right? Versus like, if you know you want to do state law in Louisiana, yeah. you know, it would behoove you to clerk for <laughs> a Louisiana court, right? So that that's that's what you want to practice and i think that ties into geography which is the third one a little bit but geography is so far down the list right like most people can live most anywhere for a year or two right like and that's just the truth i mean some people like one of my colleagues clerked in hawaii beautiful but i, I at least want to gather Hawaii wasn't the driving factor. It was the connection with the judge and the ability to talk to the judge. Um, Shreveport's a beautiful town. I mean, if I was clerking in Hawaii, I would say the same thing, that it was the, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it wasn't the lush beachfront property. That took me to I mean, Hawaii. Let you know, me just say that. <laughs> so many people, and, and you all we, all, we all lived in Austin. So many people apply to clerk in the Western District of Texas in Austin. Yeah. And, and people from out of state, right? Because Austin is fun. Yeah. Everyone loves Austin. And I agree. I love it. But I think that, and I'm certain that the judges and on Austin clerkship is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But there's a lot of really great judges and a lot of really great experiences to have in other places. Like, even though I'm only like two, yeah, two months in, um, I'm just so like having been in Treeport for a year just really just shaped, I think, the kind of lawyer I'm gonna be, the kind of person I am, quite frankly. Um, and it's crazy because you don't really notice yourself changing along the way unless it's a really big change. Um, but I feel like I do like have some of my best friends. I think I'll ever have, quite frankly, I made in a very short amount of time in Shreveport. Um, so 
yeah, it's it's a great place. So those are the things I would consider if I were going to go back and apply for another clerkship. And I think that's probably pretty consistent. Maybe not when you talk to people applying, but definitely when you talk to people on the other side of the clerkship. And so when you ended up in Shreveport, it sounds like that the geography really had nothing to do with your application process. It was this judge and sort of just the opportunity itself that kind of drove you there. Yeah, I can I can confidently say this. And based on my conversations with former clerks before I applied, this is true. I would have gone anywhere um, to clerk for Judge Carl Stewart. Um, he's just that great of a mentor and it was that great of an experience. Yeah. Um, but it, and it's not like Shreveport was like a negative or anything. Shreveport's lovely, really fun, um, has a really rich history, civil rights, um, really cool museums, great restaurants. Now, um, let, let, let's dive in. So you were in your clerkship in a novel year. And on this podcast, <laughs> so this podcast has started in the middle of 2020, and, and we've frequented this topic often. So you didn't necessarily have the normal clerkship experience, but you had one. So can you just tell us, at least to the best of your knowledge, like what what does a typical day look like for a clerk? And then what did your typical day look like? My day looked largely the same, whether I was in the office or working from home. And we start off the day usually by quick skim of just what went on in the legal world yesterday, right? Or the past couple of days if it's the weekend. New Supreme Court decisions, new decisions from the, your own court, the Fifth Circuit, new district court decisions that are going to end up on your desk. You just want to check what the other circuits are doing. Like the Eleventh Circuit used to be part of the Fifth Circuit until 1981. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you just want to know what's going on. And, and that's one thing I think I really like and my judge really liked was just kind of talking casually about, you know, updates. Um, so that was the first part of the morning. Then I would probably look at my docket. So judges on the Court of Appeals sit or hear orally argued cases uh, uh, maybe somewhere between like six to 10 times a year, just depending on the judge. So six to 10 months out of the year, you have a docket, which is like 15 to 20 cases that are going to be orally argued in front of your panel. So your judge and two other judges, like, for example, and you write the bench memos. So like summarizing the arguments and things like that, um, you write the bench memos and um, you, the clerk, although some judges write their own bench memos, that's sort of a chamber specific policy. Um, so you work on your bench memos every day, read the briefs, research the cases, assess the arguments, discuss those with your judge. Um, if you have opinions from cases that have already been heard, you write those, um, researching, talking, editing your co-clerks work. Quite frankly, we had a rotating editing process where every clerk touched every opinion, um, just to be sure. Um, and so that's kind of in the day's work, but often what took, you know, some, some time out of my days, but I really, really enjoyed it was just talking to my judge. Um, so it's funny, my judge always has his chambers door, like, so inside chambers, there's all of us and we all had our individual offices. My judge had his own like office behind the door and the door was always closed, but 
it was, it was the only closed door I've ever seen in my life that was actually an open door. Like he closed it just to give us privacy. Like he didn't want us to feel like he was watching or listening or what have you, but you know, unless he was on the phone, Yeah. anytime you knock, he'd say, come on in. And you could talk to him about a really hard case you have, something interesting going on in another court, um, any sports team. My judge is an avid sports fan. So it's, I'm a really big Longhorn fan, hence the double Longhorn. It has not been a great time being a Longhorn fan. Um, and sure enough, it's funny. I do text my judge back and forth. Um, or sometimes he texts me. When we're losing particularly bad, he'll text me. Um, he's, <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's, it's so, we, but it's actually really cool. We like watched part of one of the games in the College World Series. Like he is a TV. Um, so we watched that and we talk about, you know, we talk about real life. And so I think that probably took up, I probably took up more of his time than I should have, but just it's like, you go talk to him about life and he's lived such an amazing life. Um, and he, his office is sort of full of things he collects and, you know, trinkets from those different phases in his life. Like he started off as a Jaguar and then, you know, like it, that was an interesting experience from being like, a state prosecutor to a state, you know, just, just really every sort of legal job you can imagine he's had. So I encourage all clerks to the extent your judge is receptive and mine definitely was to talk to them. I mean, it's, it, it's, it seems really cool and very valuable to have such a close relationship. It, was it ever intimidating or, or, I mean, what, I mean, it, I mean, <laughs> It already seems like it wasn't intimidating just based on the, the relationship, but at least to me, you know, day one would seem kind of tense. It was. I think so. I am, you know, I don't know if I'm blessed. I'm going to call it a blessing. I don't scare or I'm just, like, I'm just sort of like, if I make a mistake, I make a mistake and I'll learn from it. But I just sort of like bolster up all the courage I have and like, we'll try something sometimes. And so it was sort of like the, yeah, I think it was the first day or the second day I had a question and I just like knocked on the big uh-huh. door and he was like, come in. And I was like, hello, sir. I probably said, hello, sir, your honor, judge, sir, your honor. Um, just nervous, <laughs> nervous. Uh-huh. ask me about answering the phone when another judge calls terrifying. Uh, uh, you know, that I probably said that, but I just sort of asked my question and then he's really kind. And so we probably made a joke or I mentioned something um, and it, you sort of just perform those relationships. But I think as, a, as someone who's typically the youngest person in the room or a young lawyer who doesn't know anything, I think just showing like the slightest degree of interest um, really goes a long way in, in the person you're talking to more so maybe than oh, the work or, you know, it's always going to be about the work. It's always going to be about those things. That's never going to go away. But I figured that if you have some sort of personal connection to start off with, then, you know, it just bodes well for your relationship. But yeah, he'll tell you, I'm not, judge will probably tell you I'm not shy. So if I had a question, I was coming in. That's good. I guess, you know, you, you had your clerkship one full year. Um, you had some time to, to consider a job. You got the job. Um, how have the first two months been, and uh, how do they how, how have they been enhanced by your by your year of clerkship? So, first two months have been great. Um, 
I think similar to the courtship is sort of like there's just so much to learn, um, right? Which is exciting and interesting for me um, versus, you know, there's definitely some days where I'm like, wow, you know, this is a lot to get a hand, to, to get a hand around, um, but everyone is super helpful. And I pick up the phone and call my associate mentor, Alejandra. I have to give her and Elizabeth a shout out because they literally saved me. Um, but then friends, and like I said, my judge's former clerks, who I talk to all the time too. Um, so it's been good. Um, I get to work on really cool cases that I, you know, never imagined. I mean, there's like, you know, there's the things in the news that people read about. And then there's other, which are great, right? But you know, when there's, when it's, if it's been on mainstream news, then there's a lot of lawyers working on it. And typically a lot of lawyers who are more senior than you, who, you know, manage things day to day and versus the smaller cases, which you don't ever hear about, you know, you, I get to do a lot on those cases, quite frankly. And it's really cool because it's, eight weeks in. I don't even know if I can call it two months yet. Um, so it's nice. Like there's a lot of trust um, in just how um, I've, you know, I've experienced this in Godfrey so far. It's sort of like people will tell you like, I would do it this way, but you know, you're on the case. So if you want to do it that way, then that's fine. Just let us know. Um, so the only, the only like hard rule, I think, well, two is like, obviously try your best and work hard, but two second communicate right like if you even if it's just sort of like by leaving comments in a document like there's oftentimes you're all like okay I'm gonna go ahead and just draft this this pleading or I'm gonna draft this document and then there's things I'm not sure about it's like I'll just draw it's as easy as dropping a comment in a document right and you can pick up the phone and call someone but like if someone's expecting a draft from you sometimes it's just better for them to go ahead and see it with like the parts where you're not sure about so um Lots of drafts back and forth for sure, but that's that's how you get better. Um, but it's been really cool. There's a lot of um, I didn't summer here at Sussman. Um, I not at all. So it's sort of been like learning how the farm works and then learning about the people and how the people are. And um, but both friends have been really fun so far, and really encouraging. So, would would you would you say more fast paced than? Than working at the Court of Appeals? Oh, by far. Like I could, I mean, I thought we were, I thought we were a busy chambers, but I still think we are. I think like, you know, pound for pound, our chambers, we accomplish a lot. And I thought we were busy. Like I would just work sometimes on weekends, you know, I think our chambers hours are something like 8.30 to 6, Monday through Friday, some Saturday hours. What I would give <laughs> to not to go back because this is a part of growth necessarily, but what I'd give to go back and appreciate what that looks like, right? 45, 50 hours a week to now. It's like, it's just, it's very different. Yeah. But I mean, I think about every hour I spend is like an hour of, of learning and an hour of contributing in a way that really matters. So um, it's funny. The weeks go by fast, but the days do too. I think like I had sort of, by the time I hit my task list for today, it was, you know, I probably start working um, when the sun comes up, you know, by the time I was supposed to be done, like my done time today, I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it was just literally just enough time for me to do the things I need to do. Um, so, but I also feel like, especially now I've learned what I need to do and what I want to do and what I have to do as far as like not working hours, but other times in your life, like I can't do 
all three of those things every weekend, right? Like I really wanted to, I think, go shopping for fancy salt at Trader Joe's. I have an obsession with, I don't know, fancy salt. That wasn't going to happen. Like, you know, that wasn't going to happen. But I did, I spent like three hours putting up my Christmas tree in my apartment before I left. You know, you juggle, you mitigate. But yeah, so being a clerk was great and I love it. But, um, you know, with, I don't want to sound like Spider-Man. I hope that's not trademarked. Um, what is it? With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, like I can file things. Well, not me. Someone files things with my name, you know, with my name. On <laughs> I have clients. Yeah, I can represent clients and I can do all these things that I couldn't do three, four months ago. But that means that there's a lot of training and, you know, there's a lot. Yeah responsibility that comes with that and i think that's really cool well so um as we kind of get towards the end i want to ask so as you alluded to earlier you didn't spend time in houston before you decided to accept a position at sussman so how did you end up deciding to come to houston and what what was that decision like so yeah so it really was like to be fair and having been in austin for seven years it felt like the Dallas-Houston competition, right? It felt like something I wanted to be a part of, but really, like, <laughs> really couldn't be because I was like, oh. I mean, no one, people like, T-Town, H-Town, places. Um, no one has ever like, Austin. So when you're going, and when you're going through OCI, you kind of have to pick, right? Like they don't, firms don't like it when you're open or flaky. Yeah, they because they, I mean, rightfully so, right? They're worried about retention. So my parents live, like I said, a little bit outside of Fort Worth, about an hour and 10 minutes from downtown Dallas. And I was like, well, I, I you know, would like to be closer to them, close to them. Um, I had teenage brothers at the time, still have teenage brothers, I guess, but one's in college. So, you know, he basically doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so um, just kind of chosen on a whim, really. I was like, okay, Dallas is closer than Houston. Like, let's choose Dallas. Um, and interviewed with all, I think maybe I interviewed with one Houston firm and that was actually a laugh because the Houston firm only did transactional work. And I did not know that until I went into the interview. So I, I took that as a sign that there was no way Houston was for me. I was like, well, for <laughs> one firm, just transactional work. And so, and I had a love, I mean, again, I had a great summer in Dallas. Um, the firm I was with. They were kind. The work was interesting. Um, I, you know, I had nothing against that experience. It was really cool. It wasn't, you know, three all year, very happy, very excited um, with the opportunity to go back there. It wasn't until I got probably a third to somewhere like a halfway through my clerkship when um, I sort of just started thinking about like, well, what do I want my next year to look like? And I couldn't, you know, when you're a clerk, you have all this responsibility and you get four or five cases from your docket um, that are your cases. You're responsible for how to kind of, you know, moving those cases along. And I couldn't go back, I think, to only handling a tiny piece of that. Um, I sort of like, you know, wanted to be Perry Mason or, you know, Annalise Keating minus the murders. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be sort of just in a, in a courtroom, you know, usually in, maybe in some small town, I didn't really care where, 
getting to like, you know, be, be that kind of lawyer. And didn't matter necessarily how fancy the clients or, you know, didn't, that didn't matter to me. So I really started looking high and low for firms that did just that. And it, it took me to what I consider the pinnacle of those places, like the place where I'm lucky enough to work, the Sussman Godfrey's of the world. But it also took me to some small, like nine person firms that, you know, people may not have heard of, but they did a lot of trial work. So I figured that by and far, the most diverse opportunities in what I wanted to do were in Houston. Um, and once I decided on Houston um, and I was like somehow lucky enough that Sussman Godfrey wanted to hire me, I am. Um, I, yeah, it was, it was pretty easy. Like, like once I, like once I was sold on Houston, that's what I told people. It's like, it was never a, yeah. like I said, once I, once I, I feel like I got the golden ticket, like, like one, you know, once, once people were, you know, I fooled them. Um, through all my <laughs> 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 one, one Brief moment of clarity. <laughs> but um yeah again it just i think and it's so unfortunate this is something i really lament i think is you don't know what you don't know in law school and i guess the good part is so many lawyers change career paths right like we have the freedom to jump around and do things like that and it's not as taboo as it was like for our parents right but you just don't know and i don't even mean like i feel bad for the people who like don't know as between big law and public interest and, you know, the big broad categories. But even once you sort yourself into one of those boxes, you don't know what it means to have 70% of your life be internal investigations or 70% of your life be trial work or a third of your life to be patent work. You don't know. And you don't know which firms offer those opportunities, not just in like the 10 weeks you spend as a summer, but over something like a five-year average. You don't know. Um, and so that's why I sort of like, I don't know, I tell people this and I think this is true. The clerkship year is super valuable because it gives you time to think that you don't like, you get both the experience and the insight that you didn't have in law school and also just like time to think. Like that's what, and I talked to my judge about firms, about opportunities. That's really like what's I think a hidden value of being a clerk is just the time. Yeah, and I mean, there's a ton of people I know who came into the clerkship doing one thing, expected to go back or anticipated going back and did something completely different. Maybe we need to promote a, a post-law school gap year. The bar trip can just be like the whole year. <laughs> part of it. So much perspective. I mean, you'd probably learn so much. I think that's probably a good idea. But, um, but now I'm in Houston and um, I'm loving it so far. It's really cool. I've done cool things. Um, so I... I don't often tell Finley how much I like it because I was pretty hard against it. Um, in law school, I gave him a lot of crap for Houston. I remember. But, um, I you know, remember. who would have thought I would end? Who would have thought that I would end up here? But it's been wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, you know, the the, the three of us, uh, we all need to go to some nice brunch somewhere in Houston. Houston has a lot of great brunch spots. Um, so we, we definitely have to do that and, you know, celebrate the fact that you're here in, in Texas's greatest city. <laughs> and, and I will plead the fifth. Um, it's definitely top three. 
and it's not number three. So, top three. Hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that for and now. It's I'll not number three. That's the top two. I like the mystery factor. <laughs> <laughs> and then Austin's also definitely top two. So that means we're better than Dallas. I think if my math is working of out course. correctly. Of course. <laughs> you know what? Stay tuned. <laughs> mm, well, that's fine. That's fine. Listen, I, I can live with this for now. I'll do that. I'll do okay. that. Wait, so I'm curious. Um, what you said, I mean, you've only been here like three or four months. Uh, you said you've done some cool things. What are like some of the cool things you've. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the museums are outrageous like so cool like you went to the so there's obviously like the i i ate in um a restaurant inside the houston museum of fine arts and it's like very high it's 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 called the garden but in french because everything is fancier in french it's like le jardin or something. <laughs> there you go that's it <laughs> so went there soup and that was like my first dinner it was my first like dinner in houston so really high bar my mentors um killed it with that one and um, went to the the menil which oh, yeah. it's yeah. not yeah it's not in the i don't i don't know how the museum family works I it's think like it's next separate. to st thomas it's like a free yeah, yeah. It, it's in montrose yeah it's montrose yeah which is where i live so um that's been really cool um honestly i feel like it's kind of just restaurants but but i'm a huge christmas fan like so much christmas and so i have a long list of christmas things to do i've been to herman park which is cool um Lights i went to the, the galleria okay. so big exhausted like i <laughs> i literally walked from one end to the other end carrying like <laughs> I was like, it was like Sephora bag. Like it was pretty small. Like I got like, I think I got like a lip gloss from Sephora because I'm 12. Um, and my Apple Watch was like, is your heart rate okay? And I'm like, man, I mean, I work from you home. You tell me. Like, <laughs> I don't move around. I'm like, man, like that's rude. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> But it's giant, and I forgot where I parked, like a rookie. So I'm over here, like, yo, there's a yellow garage, there's a red garage, there's an orange garage. Um, I finally just, I think my car has a little, like, you know, Google drops a pin. I was just yeah. chasing that bad boy, like, it was terrible. Um, that's it. No, I, I was gonna say, I, I guess I sound like a local, but I, I never remember that the Galleria is abnormal because that's just what I know it's abnormal no, no like i had never i don't i've never been in the one in dallas there's a gallery in dallas too i yeah. never gone to that so that was probably the like it was it was so overwhelming to me like i because i I'm, i don't i like to buy things sometimes but i don't like i just after covid me and crowds are strange so i like thought i could like map my way in and out it didn't matter i didn't realize there were three floors i was operating the assumption that there were two so the third one, I was like, what are you doing here? Like, that was like <laughs> a surprise. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, it sounds like you're you're being integrated not only in the city, but also at your job and, and you're thriving. Um, I'm I'm very happy to see it. You know, it's it's been a 
you know, it's, it's cool. Like, you know, there are people that I knew in law school and you know, I graduated and I saw them graduate and we're all just out here, you know, doing stuff. So, you know, con- continue and, and congratulations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild to think about. I mean, I feel like in every, every time you get to this stage of your life, you look back at how easy it was before. And I'm just like, man, I'll never take the bar again. So (laughs) (laughs) let's, let's carve out this couple months. I'm like, you, the way I walked around the university of Texas school of law, like I was busy, like I had struggles. She didn't. She, I mean, she didn't choose that, Amber. She was doing great. Bless her poor heart. I was like, I'm still doing great now. I'm doing great now. But um, I guess, and at every successive stage in life, you're just grateful that you're still learning and that people are willing to take a chance on you to teach you. So, infinitely more grateful now than I was then. But I'm curious to know, like, as I go later stages in my career what that part will look like when I look back on this. And I'm like, man, that girl had it easy. Hmm. But hopefully that day's coming. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Amber. Yeah, this is great. It was great to talk. But we should definitely get brunch. And of course, I work with the lovely Christina. I was living on the phone with her um, today to ask about something that I'm sure she's an expert in and I'm figuring out. She's amazing, as you know, probably better than I do. We'll have to rope her in for sure. Her and uh, maybe Rick too. Also, really nice. Yeah. Yes. Uh, definitely. Yeah. All right. And you know, with, um, you know, we can sign off here. Um, thank you once again, Amber, and have a great night. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the High Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlifespodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.